And now to introduce uh, today's speaker, Dr. Christopher Van Tilburg. He is currently medical director of occupational and travel medicine at Providence Hood River. And after spending years venturing around the world, Dr. Van Tilburg uh, ultimately attended medical school at University of Washington. He trained in family medicine and practiced urgent and emergency care for several years before specializing in wilderness, occupational, and travel medicine. Dr. Van Tilburg has done a tremendous amount of additional work in as a medical expert witness, uh, a prolific author, as well as a public speaker. We're absolutely delighted for the chance to hear from him today. Uh, and so thank you, Dr. Van Tilburg, for joining us. Well, thank you uh, for that introduction. Uh, can you all hear me okay? Yes, we can. Thank you. Okay. Well, I, uh, in addition to that really uh, great introduction, I'm also the Hood River County Public Health Officer, so I'm very happy to not be talking about COVID today. And I'm talking. I'm, I'm going to speak about mountain rescue today, which is something near and dear to my heart. I've, I've been a rescue mountaineer with Hood River Crag Rats for 20 years. I'm medical director of Portland Mountain Rescue, Clackamas County Search and Rescue, and Pacific Northwest Search and Rescue. And I'm going to, um, today I'm just going to sort of give my, my most important 15 lessons that I've learned over the last 25 years in doing this. And really they're lessons that are applicable to many aspects of medicine. And probably many of you will recognize some of these lessons and um, hopefully be able to build upon them. So uh, I'm going to start out by showing you pictures of the Hood River Crag Rats. We're a mountain rescue team in Hood River, Oregon. We're the first organized mountain rescue team in the United States. Uh, we started doing rescues in 1926 and have been continuously operating since then. This is a picture from the 1930s and this is a picture from the 19 late 30s on the summit of Mount Hood uh, where the Craig rats were not only doing rescues but also doing some guided climbs. This is these sticks here are alpenstocks. They were, that was before the days of um, Isexes and that building there is the ranger cabin on the summit of Mount Hood. So I'm going to talk about risk, but uh, first some background. You know, I do a lot of talks about risk to non-medical audiences, and I, I, I like to really make sure I define risk, and because it's important that people understand that there's two pieces. One is the probability of getting hurt. We we all kind of know that the frequency, duration, and severity of the conditions, uh, you know, increase your your risk. So even if you're, say, a general surgeon and you're doing colonoscopies, if you do thousands of colonoscopies that are in um, that are for, you know, treatment or uh, they're complicated, obviously your risk is going to go up. Then if you only do, say, screening colonoscopies that are very straightforward. Um, and so this is in medicine and this is in the outdoors both. Uh, but the main thing that I think we need to remind ourselves of is the consequence of a mishap. And that's really an important component of risk. So here's my friend Johnny. We were down surfing in Mexico and right after this you can imagine you know these are little ankle biter waves. They're not uh, maybe if a wipeout wouldn't be that uh, catastrophic but the wave after this one he stepped on a sea urchin and had a spine embedded in the bottom of his foot. So although the probability might have been low the the, the consequence of that uh, was you know fairly significant being in a remote part in Mexico, having a spine buried deep in his foot. And so you kind of get the idea. Here's a very popular risk matrix, matrix 
um, pictogram that we use a lot. So as as your if your probability and your consequence are both low, you're green, but as probability increases and consequences increases, you approach the red zone. So here's in a mountain rescue mission in Eagle Creek for many years ago. This was a uh, person who this is the first presentation of a benign insulinoma. So this patient was uh, had a when we found her, her temperature was 86 and her blood sugar was undetectable on a glucometer and we were uh, four miles up the trail. And so uh, but we, we luckily were, were close to our vehicle. So this is a relatively lower risk consequence to the rescuers versus uh, this place, which is Everest Base Camp, which is both high probability of uh, uh, injury or mishap and high consequence. So you get the idea. So the other piece that's important when we talk about risk is accidents are almost always a series of mistakes. And this is, we see this in medicine and we see this in the outdoors and we see this in a lot of uh, risk um, analysis that it's often not one catastrophic mistake, but it's a series of mistakes. And so that's really an important concept. So I'm going to talk about, I'm going to show you my 15 lessons, and some of them are going to be very quick. Some of them will be a little more involved, but I'm going to break them down into before a mission, during a mission, and after a mission. And we, I use these almost daily. We had a mission last night in Warren Creek Canyon uh, that wrapped up about midnight. We had a mission two days ago uh, in Mount Rainier National Park. Uh, and so we're, I'm using these lessons daily, and probably many of you are also. So the first lesson is training is really, really important. And the answer that the question I get all the time for which I don't have a great answer for is how much training is enough. I don't really like our mantra in medicine where we say see one, do one, teach one. It's not often that simple. So here's a here's a dislocated shoulder that I reduced at 7000 feet on Mount Hood. Um, which for me, I uh, you know I do this somewhat regularly because I work up at the Mount Hood Meadows uh, Ski Resort Clinic. But for a like a mountain guide or a lay rescuer who maybe was shown how to do this in a wilderness first responder course, but has never actually done it, it is somewhat um, you know it's somewhat risky. Uh, you know we all know that there are complications of doing a shoulder dislocation uh, wrong or uh, maybe it's not a shoulder dislocation, it was misdiagnosed and it's a humerus fracture. So um, it's important to, uh, it's really important to train. And here's the the, the uh, aftermath of this rescue, reducing a dislocating a dislocated shoulder in the wilderness is huge because this guy was able to walk out, which is just a, a huge uh, benefit as opposed to a rescue three years before the same area. This is up on the Elliott Glacier on the north side of Mount Hood. If we have to carry somebody out, it's a um, it's a high risk operation. And so training is really important. I'm a big advocate. Lesson number two, train on the basics. It's really important in my view to have the basics down really well. And if any of you have some uh, service in the military, there are a lot of branches of the military that really focus on the basics and then add in comp uh, complexity. And so here's a rope rescue in Eagle Creek. This is um, 
uh, Cliff, a patient came, uh, had a head injury. Uh, this, I intubated him. I like this picture because we, there's some fire department folks that are helping. There's a the guy in the red shirts, a family medicine physician uh, that was just a bystander and there's some military folks there. But here is the rope rescue system. And if any of you are mountaineers or rock climbers, you probably know that this is the most basic rope hauling system you can construct. And it's very, very basic. And that's why we have so many people pulling on the rope because it's there's no mechanical advantage here. So in mountain rescue, we tend to like, sometimes we like complicated things. And so, to some extent in medicine too, this on the left is a very complicated rope rescue kit for raising somebody off a cliff or out of a crevasse. But this on the right is a very simple, very basic kit. This is, uh, you can haul somebody out of a crevasse with two pulleys, two prussics, and three carabiners and a rope. And so, uh, training on the basics. Um, choosing gear mindfully. And so this is, we love outdoor gear and we we um, we use it and we buy it and we, uh, you know, watch the ads and we um, see the uh, social media and, and we love equipment. And I really am, encourage people to be mindful when you buy your equipment because you want to make sure that your equipment is strong and uh, completes the job. And if you buy lightweight equipment, you sometimes compromise durability. If you buy one tool, two to tool to do multiple functions, you sometimes compromise um, function. So here's a great paper from 2015. I love this because we used to teach femoral traction splints in mountain rescue and in wilderness first responder all the time. And this is a really nice paper because the, the, the conclusion is basically um, rarely does a femur traction splint make a difference because in mountain rescue, it takes us hours to reach patients and they're usually stable or dead. We're not going to probably prevent a catastrophic bleed. And what happens is we don't, if you're a lay person and you don't use a femoral traction splint, even if you're a medical person and you don't use a femoral traction splint uh, regularly, it's, it's hard to remember how to use it. It is, um, it's another item you have to put in your backpack and carry up the trail. So instead, in, in the outdoor medicine and wilderness medicine, we use a lot of improv, and this is a ski pole femur traction splint that um, works. Sometimes we have to retire equipment. This is the mountain locator unit, which is basically developed on Mount Hood after the 1983 Oregon Episcopal School disaster. And this is basically an animal tracker. And so we finally retired this in um, last year. And this is, uh, we retired this because everybody has cell phones now. And so communication is so much better with cell phones. Um, sometimes equipment literally revolutionizes safety. And so this picture on the left is some crag wrap mountain rescues uh, climbing up the north side of Mount Hood. And you can see the big uh, alpenstock there, that long stick, which is designed to help you up the mountain, but most importantly, help you stop if you start sliding on the snow. And then this is a picture from around this early 60s uh, on the north side of Mount Hood. And you see the guy in the front has a alpenstock and the guy below it has an ice axe, which completely revolutionized climbing safety. And so this is my kit. This is the kit I had on our mission two days ago on Mount Rainier. So it's very, very light. It's somewhat expensive, um, but it, um, and so it's chosen very carefully. We're using, High tech a lot now in mountain rescue. Here's a paper I wrote on uh, using a drone in um, uh, False Creek Canyon in the Columbia River Gorge. Uh, we used the drone basically to confirm a fatality. So 
uh, I didn't have to go down at the end of a uh, 300 foot rope into a slot canyon at, in, the, in the middle of the night. Um, we use uh, Everbridge for communication on our cell phone, which is a really fabulous um, communication app for public safety. And I love, love, love GPS unit, uh, apps on a phone. And the reason I love it so much is if you have a GPS app, you, a lot of people use Gaia, some people use CalTOPO. Um, the reason it's great, as opposed to going out and buying a two or $300 separate GPS unit, is we always have our phones with us for one, and two, you can use it all the time and practice with it. And so it basically turns your phone into a global position uh, positioning system unit. Here's a problem we have, batteries, right? Everything takes a different gauge. Some are rechargeable, some are not rechargeable, uh, and that is uh, a problem to manage. Okay, lesson four, practice is different than training. So training, we learn how to do something, practice, we do it over and over and over. And Malcolm Gladwell's book, you might be familiar with this, he said it takes 10,000 hours to be an expert, um, which is, you know, kind of interesting, but really what we know is you have to practice with, you know, mindfully, and we have to practice with intent and practice with the goal of being better and learn and practicing our techniques. And so it's really important. So here's a snow cave I built um, after I learned how to do it. This is uh, my internship at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City uh, around 1995. And I went to a Wilderness Medical Society conference and learned how to build a snow cave. I built it and then went to bed in my house. This is in my backyard. And the next morning I woke up to this. So I built it incorrectly because I didn't have the wall supported. So um, it's important to practice this stuff. This is practicing using a Gamow bag on a Mount Everest uh, base camp uh, expedition. So we're at 14,000 feet and we pressurized this Gamow bag, which is a hyperbaric uh, chamber to 10,000 feet. So we, we had a layover day that we weren't trekking and we practice. This is a picture of my daughter. One year I bought a uh, canoe and I wanted to practice what we were gonna do if we capsized. So we went up to the Hood River pool. I didn't tell my two daughters were, I think eight and 10 at the time. I told them to wear their swimsuits underneath their clothes because the locker room was closed and broken. And they kind of looked at me kind of weird. And we walked up to the Hood River Sports Club pool on an early Saturday morning and I pushed them both in the water fully clothed. And then we proceeded to spend another hour practicing self-rescue. So important to practice this stuff. Um, lesson five, if you're not healthy, don't go. And this is hard for us as, um, as medical providers that we, um, we tend to, you know, show up, right? We, we, we tend to show up, you're on call or you have a full day of surgery or full day of clinic. We tend to show up because that's just what we do. But physical and mental well-being, sleep, nutrition, fitness, mental health is really important for all of us. And it's hard to not go. It's really hard to not go, but it's an important lesson. Okay, so those are my before you go lessons. This is, I have a few lessons for how to mitigate risk while we're in the thick of rescues. And I could talk about, I could do a whole hour just on being in the field and doing um, risk, but uh, risk assessment and risk mitigation. But I, I just picked three or four of the most important lessons. And the one is dovetailing on what I just said about if you're not healthy, don't show up, is rescuer safety is the most important. Okay, so if we're not healthy, 
we can't command a team, we can't do our procedures, and we really have to protect the rescuers. And you, all of you know this because if you're, you've ever taken uh, advanced cardiac life support or advanced trauma life support, the first thing you do when you show up for a code is you put on gloves and um, and a face and face protection and a mask. So protecting yourself is important. And here's a rescue we did on the White Salmon River years ago. Uh, this was a I think a open elbow fracture and a pelvis fracture and an ankle injury and this is with this is on a log jam that's floating in the middle of the white salmon river and we successfully hoisted the patient up to the helicopter and then i don't know if you can see in this picture right in the middle lower third is a dog and this is how she got hurt in the first place she was going after her dog and so my my partner at the time jim jim uh the crew up above sent down an empty backpack we put the dog in the backpack and as Jim was going up the canyon, he smacked himself into this cliff and um, split open his knee and had to get stitches. So um, it happens. Fortunately, it, it hasn't been catastrophic in our team. This is a picture from a very widely publicized rescue on Mount Hood in 2006 for three climbers, one of whom we found dead and the two others have never been found. And this is planning. And when I took this picture to the Hood of her news, I said, you know, we're planning this, we're up at Cloud Cap Inn. Um, our base camp is 6,000 feet on Mount Hood, getting ready to plan the rescue. But if you could crop out the Chivas Regal bottle, that would be uh, good. So we're uh, not showing that. But here is uh, Jim Wells, who's the operations chief up at Cloud Cap Inn, and he's planning the rescue. And you can't really see this picture, but there's an objective up there on the whiteboard. And the first objective is safety of the rescuers. There's high avalanche danger and it was very cold and very windy. And so um, that is the first objective safety of the rescuers. So another thing we're coming in um, that is very prevalent in mountain rescue is trying to balance situational awareness and distractions. And we have a culture nowadays of being distracted regularly. We're distracted by social media. We're distracted by our uh, communications with our phone when people expect instant answers to our text message. I mean, I have two daughters. And you know they they um, have learned to be patient, but it's, um, it's people tend to want things to happen instantly, and there's a lot of things going around. And there's two pieces I think that are important for us. One is to make sure that we're all aware of adrenaline. And even for me, as a you know, I've been a physician for 25 years, and uh, two years ago I was sitting on my back deck after a bike ride on a Sunday morning, and I got a text from the sheriff that said. Um, Eagle Creek accident CPR in progress. And it's really hard not to get jacked up and throw everything to the side and get in my rescue clothes and meet my buddies and drive, um, you know, lights and sirens to Eagle Creek. It's hard to, you know, not do that. And so we have to, I think, recognize that as much as possible. And then the second piece is multitasking. Multitasking generally does not work in a high intensity situation. Um, it just doesn't work. There are very few people that it works for, but generally doesn't. So here's the series of rescue in Eagle Creek. And you can imagine and Mark and Asa here setting up a rope rescue system. You can imagine if Mark, who's very intent on setting up the rope raising system, if he has to pause for a minute to answer a call on the radio, and then he goes back to his uh, system, he's been distracted. And it's that's how mistakes get happen happen. I'm not sure if this video will play. Oh yeah, I think that's planned. So I this I took this is a uh, rescue on um, Mount Hood uh, a couple years ago, and I this is news footage that I watched in my office. I was seeing patients, and I couldn't go on this mission. And it's actually quite rare to see CPR in progress 
in the mountains. And if you see, there's two people standing that are doing nothing but shielding the rescuers from rockfall or for, from icefall. And there's two people that are doing CPR um, on this patient. And like I said, this is uh, news footage, so it's in the public domain. Uh, the, and, and so you can see these guys are two guys are shielding. See, there's some ice fall that's coming down. So very dangerous situation. And the reason I wanted to show this is because these folks did CPR for two hours until a fairly risky helicopter um, raise. And so many of you know that CPR for two hours is contraindicated in medicine in most situations. And so it's a this is a situational awareness, uh, a situational awareness issue where there's a lot of adrenaline flowing. But when you step back and think, should we really do a risky helicopter rescue for CPR that's been in progress for two hours? OK, lesson number eight, checklist work. Um, we use checklists in mountain rescue um, and we use them in medicine. This is a tool, Guande's book, the checklist manifesto, manifesto about taking the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration checklist system for pilots and adapting that to medicine in particular surgery. Now, this is a very short book, but it's, um, it's important because the reason checklists work and memory aids and references work is because they're created in times of calm and you can think things through and make a plan. And then in times of crisis, you don't have to think, you just follow the checklist. And so we use these in medicine all the times. In fact, more and more now than probably in my entire career, because we have protocols and standing orders for lots of different things. And so in mountain rescue, we use we carry a technical riggers guide, which is a rope rescue. Um, uh, cheat sheet. We have an avalanche field rescue guide, but there's all kinds of checklists. You can use them in many aspects of your life. This is the hasty search guide for that uh, is used by the Mount Hood Meadows Professional Ski Patrol uh, when there's an avalanche uh, accident. And on the back side of this card, which I really like, is a witness statement. And this is another uh, way that you can use a checklist to not miss a very important piece of um, mountain rescue, and that's talking to the reporting party and we do this in medicine right because we always try to get an accurate history if we can um, and this is directly applicable to mountain rescue and then we have to get an accurate history and this is a cheat sheet to help us do that here's a SAR urgency worksheet that we use throughout Oregon to try to gauge a response it's another this is really not a checklist as much as an assessment tool to try to determine um, uh, response time safety pauses safety pauses work they work we use them we use them in medicine everybody knows epic and loves epic um, and so this is the timeout that we use in epic many of you are familiar with this and um, this is a sort of a safety pause that i have at my clinic in occupational medicine we have a safety huddle once a week and we put stuff on the board and we run through problem patients or clinic things it takes about uh, 15 minutes or less um, and here's what we use in mountain rescue this is adapted from the u.s coast guard gar safety pause this is gar is green amber red and I, I really like this model we do an abbreviated version for this but the way it works is is everybody in their own head every team member if you have five people responding to a mountain rescue mission and you have one team leader everybody individually privately rates these six categories and uh, sometimes 
our team has changed um, uh, one of these from team selection to um, equipment. You know, so you you rate them all zero to ten. Zero being we're not prepared. I'm sorry. Zero being we we have no concern. Ten meaning you have a high concern, and you rate them. And the the important piece here is you're rating your supervision. So you're rating your team leader. You're rating your SAR deputy who's in charge. Uh, and so you rate all these, and then you sort of in your head plot them. And if you're uh, if you're you plot them into a green, amber, red, and then you go around the the um, group you know you do this we do this at the trailhead right at the uh, before we leave the truck before we head up the trail and you rate them green amber red and so if everybody's green the mission is a go if somebody's amber usually say i'm amber because uh of the weather i'm worried about the weather it's very cold the snowpack is ice we have aluminum crampons not steel crampons and so uh that would be amber you bring up a topic for discussion and then red would be hey, I do not feel comfortable with this. We need to go back and replan. And this usually takes about five minutes. So it's very quick. It's very um, uh, concise. And we do it because we do it repetitively. We sort of in the mode. And so and so it's a really good safety timeout that we use. Um, another lesson when you're in the thick of missions and many of you, this will sound familiar because we're aware of these uh, in medicine as well as in mountain rescue is be, be careful of heuristic traps. And this is something that is um, we teach in avalanche rescue and we teach in mountain safety courses and avalanche safety courses. And it's 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 something that really gets people into trouble regularly. So a heuristic trap is a decision shortcut um, or um, a a rule of thumb that you use without assessing the situation. So these, there's there's probably 15 or so different categories of heuristic traps. These six that I have listed here are kind of the most common that we see in the mountains. We see it in uh, we see it in mountain rescue, and we see it um, in recreational rescue. So the so familiarity. So this would be your you drive up to Timberline Lodge. You're going to skin to the top of Palmer. You're you might go up to above Palmer to Crater Rock, and it's a sunny day. So familiarity. Oh, I do this all the time. I know it's fine. It's there's no danger here. That's familiarity or consistency. I've never seen an avalanche here. It's fine. It's no, nothing's going to happen. Um, acceptance is one we see all the time. Meaning, hey, Van Tilburg's going up the mountain. You're our leader. You're, it's fine. I'm going to take your word for it. And so uh, expert halo, that's something that we have to be careful of uh, in medicine. I'm a mountain rescue doctor. I teach avalanche safety. I teach mountain safety. I'm, I know what I'm doing, right? Expert halo. Scarcity, we never, ever get snow like this in Oregon. We have to go. We have to drop into this bowl. We have to duck this rope and catch the side country. And then social facility, we see this a lot in Mount Hood. People are climbing up to Crater Rock and they say, oh, there's a party going up uh, Pearly Gates left. It must be fine. There's another group up there. And so that's, you get an idea of those heuristic traps that we have to really be careful of when we're in the thick of mountain rescue. Okay, so here's a, and this is more common in groups. This is a, a, a rescue and the ping pong ball. You know, you can't really tell the sky from the, from the snow, this is a, actually, unfortunately, this is a body recovery on the Luthold Kawar. This is tra uh, traversing from Illumination Saddle over to the top of Palmer, a ski lift on uh, Timberline Lodge. And this is 
four different agencies all working together. And so this makes the heuristic traps even um, more risky because we have to really be careful that we don't um, that we're, we're we have to be careful when we're interacting in with multiple different groups that we don't interact with. This doesn't happen so much in medicine because we tend to just say operate or work in the emergency room at just our hospital or working just in our clinic. But it, it does happen and it is um, concerning. Here's a fabulous story that's uh, uh, several years old, but this is a story about an avalanche up at Stevens Pass that caught nine people with three fatalities and all nine of them were either um, mountain experts or expert skiers or industry professionals. And this is a really good story about um, human dynamics and about um, peer pressure and about not questioning um, or bringing up concerns to a group. And it's a, it's a great uh, multimedia story on the New York Times if you want to check it out. So another lesson, and this is how we sort of mitigate some of these issues is National Incident Command System. So we use this at the Hood River County Health Department for our COVID response. This is a picture of uh, the Canadian homepage for Incident Command, and I put that in just to sort of remind everybody that this is used around the world. You probably are using it in your hospital uh, for uh, your, your pandemic response. But this is a way of multiple groups um, uh, or actually a single group organizing themselves or a larger incident that has to interact with multiple different agencies. And so it's a way of using a common language, of dividing work, of having adequate supervision, and it really works. And the nice thing about Incident Command is you can use Incident Command with three or four people, or you can use Incident Command with 500 people, which is, um, you know, like the Eagle Creek fire from two years ago. And so it's really, um, it's a really great tool. It's very hard to follow if you're a, a type A person that's used to being in charge and in control and not delegating because a lot of what Incident Command does is delegate and you have to trust the people that you're delegating to and it's sometimes very hard for us to follow. Um, okay, so what do we do after mission? So I talked about sort of some lessons for um, before you go and lessons um, while you're in the thick of it and here's this is um, I'm going to talk about some post mission um, after you get back, how do you mitigate risk when you get back? So this is actually the not quite when you get back, but this is aborting the mission is really important. So it's important to know when you're over your head, know when to ask for help. We do this all the time in medicine, right? We get on the phone and talk to a specialist. We get on the phone and talk to a subspecialist. Uh, we ask for help from respiratory therapy because we don't want to manage the vent or we might not know how to manage a vent, for example. So it's important to abort the mission. It's important to modify it. It's it's important and 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 document it well. And so this is a mission that the Hood River Crag Rats were deployed to up on the White Salmon uh, River. Oh, sorry, the Klickitat River up in uh, Klickitat County. And this was a body recovery for a rafting accident. And this is a mission where I went up the night before, this is the next morning. And this is something that we can't do. We can't do swift water rescue because we're not trained for it. And so this is the dive rescue team from Clark County doing the swift water rescue. So it's important to know when you're over your head, when you can't, um, uh, when you no longer can respond. Here is another picture. This is from the 2006 mission for the three climbers. Many of you, if you were uh, maybe remember that, uh, the three climbers who um, one died and two we couldn't find. And this is, I like this picture because this is um, the climbers 
one of the climbers had a 911 call or sorry one of the climbers called his wife in distress in on a saturday they had previously left their car the thursday before so they presumably got into trouble on friday evening saturday morning uh call went out on saturday evening by the time we figured out what was going on we didn't really have a organized plan till sunday afternoon and these were the first responders on the mountain and this was monday at 10 a.m and so i like to tell people that if you have to call a mountain rescue team we may not be able to get to you very quickly and so this is monday this is almost 48 hours after the original distress call came in and so this is very very dangerous terrain this is at 8,000 feet on the elliott glacier um, in about 20 degree temperature with you can see the wind there's blowing about 30 and it's just very difficult and this is about this is uh 10 days later the same mission we were still searching you see there's a uh, multiple multiple things going on in this picture because the mountain was closed to climbing the airspace was closed there's a helicopter up there in the top left which is taking a team to the summit to rappel down the uh face that's in the sun there which is the top of the um elliott headwall chute and uh, my team was in, in this group uh these two skiers and myself uh, were skiing up to the uh snowfield in the sun there on the right up to the top of what's called a uh, snow dome and we got about halfway up and had to abort our mission because the avalanche danger was very very high it's very um sunny beautiful clear calm day but uh four days prior we had rain up on the mountain uh three days prior we had uh snowfall and then one day prior we had a lot of wind and so it was very high avalanche danger so we had to uh, abort the mission um we're we're paying in mountain rescue we're paying a lot of effect a lot of attention to residual effects on rescuers this is something that fire departments and law enforcement has done doing for a while this is something we do not do very well in medicine in my opinion but how do we address the residual effects on rescuers so it's one thing to have you know fatigue and exhaustion we were on a mission last night and i got to bed at 11 30. so you know i slept but you know uh, that was a back-to-back -back mission because we just got back from a mission on mount rainier and so that's something that we have to be very careful of fatigue and exhaustion we before we get to full-on post-traumatic stress disorder which is uh, we i we, we use this acute stress disorder uh, a lot i use this in my practice in um, occupational medicine for somebody who had a very traumatic or stressful uh, traumatic trauma at work and they're having some stress about it and it's not full-on pstd ps ptsd but it's it's a stress disorder and so it's important to pay attention to this this is uh, many of you have maybe seen this in the context of either um, psychological first aid or mental first aid to rescuers and this is from uh, this is a, this is a military um, slide which we use basically in our mountain rescue discussions about um, mental health and so you can see on the left side somebody has a stressor and on the left side they were able to deal with it and they um, got through it and that person is ready to deploy and then you can see as you travel to the right on this continuum uh, somebody who is um, reacting you know they're stressed I mean I've had this happen to me before on uh, on on uh, body recoveries and plane crashes which are which are very disturbing or um or you know more minor uh rescues with children that are hurt and so you know reacting 
is the next step and then the third piece is injured and the fourth piece is ill and so you know we don't we don't have to follow these exactly but it gives you an idea that we we have to pay attention to the mental health of rescuers um, and all of us in medicine lesson 14 i got two more so lesson 14 debrief is important this is really important so we do a number of debriefs the most common we do is right there at the scene uh, at the end of the mission so we had a pretty straightforward mission last night for for two people who were lost in warren creek canyon coming off mount defiance and um no injuries um and so we do a rapid debrief at the end of the mission. We get together for about five minutes and go around. Does anybody hurt? Did anybody damage gear? Is there anything we can do further? We got some vehicles stuck in the snow. The extrication of the vehicles worked fine. So a quick, rapid debrief. Then we do a more informal debrief at our team meetings uh, once a month where we go through the rescues from that, um, that um, uh, previous month. Um, sometimes we do a formal debrief. Sometimes we do, well, we haven't done this in our mountain rescue team. We did this at our hospital a couple times, a SWAT, SWOT conference. And sometimes I'll just make a phone call. So, you know, as the medical director for our team, I take a very active role. I'm also an active rescuer, which takes up more of my time than being the medical director. But I sometimes just make a phone call to one of the other rescuers and say, hey, you know, I know that you're a lawyer or an orchardist or um, a school teacher and you're not used to seeing a dead body or is everything okay you feel you feel okay about it and so sometimes I just do a simple debrief on the phone um, and so here's a here's a mission for a lost couple um, up at uh, Lawrence Lake this is doing the debrief here's a plane crash where we had a very extensive sit down debrief with a state psychologist who came this is a plane crash uh, which uh, three bodies we brought three bodies out in four body bags. You can imagine how um, bad the plane crashes are. And then here's the SWOT analysis. Is if you've ever, if you have a specific problem or a specific debrief, uh, this is a really good format to use so that you can see the the top line. You look at sort of the internal issues. What are the strengths and witness and weaknesses? Usually, the the weakness is a uh, problem you're trying to solve. We used this once in my emergency department when I was working in the emergency department in Hood River, and I don't remember particularly what the weakness was, but we were trying to solve a problem. So you look at the strengths and weakness internally, and then you go externally, you look at the opportunities and threats and try to, you know, this just gives you a framework for a briefing. Okay, last thing, prevention works. And we know this, we're all in medicine, and we know that prevention works, but to what extent does it work? And I can tell you these are, this is a hot topic every few years for uh, in the in the news media and on social media. You know, how do we keep people from getting into trouble? Fortunately, at least probably half of the missions that we go on in Hood River County are for people that are doing things right. They're relatively prepared, but they just got into trouble. Like our mission last night, you know, they, they were prepared. They just missed the trail and walked off the trail and ended up in a, um, in a steep drainage. You know, that happens. And so, but how do we prevent this in the future? So these are some things that we try. We try to limit access and close areas. We try a fee or a free permit-based system. This is a hot topic on Mount Hood because you have to have a a fee-based permit to climb Mount Adams, Mount St. Helens, and Mount Rainier, but you don't need a 
there's no fee or permit to climb Mount Hood other than a wilderness permit that every that you can get for free. Uh, you can have prepaid donations. A lot of states are using this. They call them search and rescue cards. Um, you can get insurance. Uh, this is a very popular way of mitigating risk in Europe. Uh, if you have any of you have ever been ski touring or hiking in Europe, you can get rescue insurance for very inexpensive. Uh, you can charge for missions in Oregon. We're one of five states that does allow sheriff departments to charge for missions. Um, it's not done very often, but um, this is a very popular me means for preventing search and rescue in Europe. Uh, you can levy fines. This we had one year about uh, four or five years ago, the Oregonian and the Hood River News both did stories on this really fabulous new sport called cliff jumping. And people were jumping off the cliff in Eagle Creek Punch Bowl. It's about a, there's a 50 foot uh, platform and there's a 70 foot platform in the rocks. And uh, we went on many, many calls for people who uh, got injured. We had a fatality there. We had a scrotal injury. We had a uh, thoracic spine fracture and very difficult rescue because you have to use a floating litter to get them from the plunge across the plunge pool um, and so just so uh, the fine system went up but the last thing is really education and education really works it we know this because our patients listen to us um, education really works and so i'm a big fan of education and so this is a picture that you know your 22 year old skier or snowboarder who is an expert at everything can somewhat understand. This is a backcountry access gate. I took this picture about 10 years ago. This is leaving the Canyons uh, Ski Resort at Park City, Utah, and you can you can ride the chairlift up and then exit into the backcountry. And so this is a sign there. And it, incidentally, somebody went through this sign. This is about 10 years old, this picture, but somebody this year went through the sign and hiked uh, peak 9, 99, 90, went out of bounds, got caught in an avalanche and died. And so that just happened uh, about a month ago. And so so they work sometimes. Um, this is a this is up in Alieska. I really like, I, I love this and I hate this sign. This is in Alieska. This is a inbounds expert only. And if you're a 22 year old male, you're pretty much an expert at everything you do. And all you're gonna read is the open sign and the expert sign. And that's okay for you to go. You're not gonna read all these words that say, be careful. Uh, this is, I took this picture in Portillo, Chile, when I was down there skiing with family, um, uh, helmet advocacy sign. This is another helmet advocacy sign, which is, I like this because this is sort of endorsed by the Anchorage pediatricians. This is actually a, I, it's snowy here because this is a cross country ski area in the winter and a bike um, path in the summer or summer. This is up in the Kincaid Trail System in Anchorage, Alaska. Um, and this is a very simple sign, very effective. This is a, an area where we had a couple of snow, non-avalanche snow submersion fatalities that I worked as an expert witness on. And this was a sign in the creek that separates um, Whistler Ski Resort and Blackcomb Ski Resort. And a uh, very simple, effective sign. And they've got the little snowboarder there upside down. And so um, those are my 15 lessons. I, I really appreciate uh, giving it, uh, getting a chance to talk. And I hope that those are applicable to your practice and your life. And I'm happy to be available if anybody has questions. Great, Great. thanks. thanks. Thank you so Thank much, you so Dr. Much, Tilburg. Um, I think many lessons uh, that we can all take from that. Um, 
Thanks for leaving some time for reflection and questions too. We'll just pause here a moment to see if additional ones come through on the chat. Um, of interest, we have a comment here from a participant noting that the Grand Canyon charges for missions um, when they worked in the medical clinic there uh, 20 years ago at $1,000. So an example there of um, fees to help uh, mitigate risk and, and cover the costs. Um, perhaps while we're waiting, I, I had a question to pose. Uh, it appears that you have quite a, a varied and inspired career over the years. Um, and I just wondered in terms of lessons applied, um, thinking about maintaining uh, motivation and engagement in work as a physician, um, particularly across stressful times and, and maybe of a much smaller scale than the kinds of rescues you encounter. Um, any thoughts or lessons that you've taken away over the years for helping keep the physician workforce engaged day to day in their work? Well, that's a that's a that's a great question and a difficult question. I've I've I think um, balance is very important. Obviously, the work life balance is very important. And I think uh, if you're a young physician, setting that goal early in in one's life is important, one's career. Um, you know, I've never worked more than three days a week in a clinical job, but I also have a 14-year-old Toyota Sequoia. So I, I have a low overhead, but I think you have to set those goals early on in your career to have a good life-work balance. And if you're later in your career, recognize that you, um, you, you, it, you're either out of balance or you're in balance and uh, take active steps to maintain that. Great, thanks so much. I have a question here commenting, such amazing stories and photos. Is there any way for mid-career physicians to start to get involved? Yeah, the um, we've got uh, one, uh, two physicians on our team. One's inactive and one is very active. And uh, my friend who's a very active colleague of mine, who's also a, who's a general surgeon at Hood River, his comment uh, to me a few, about a, I don't know, a year ago said, I'm amazed how little I use my medical skills in a mountain rescue. <laughs> and that's really true. So I think a lot of what we do, a lot of what I bring to the table as a physician is leadership to our team. Because, you know, as doctors and and nurses and medical professionals, we're used to leadership roles. And so if you're mid-career or late career and you can bring leadership to the team, um, you know, as a physician, a lot of times I'm the guy schlepping rope up the trail. And so I think it's never too late. We had a guy join our team who was 62 uh, or 63 and is an expert in uh, uh, electronics. And he just revolutionized our entire electronic program, our radio program. So it's never too late. You don't use medicine a lot in, in mountain rescue, though. Always nice to think that we each have a skill set to bring. Um, there was a related question, just wondering if really all of this work is done on a volunteer basis. Yeah, it's my favorite job that I don't get paid for. Yeah, it's it's all volunteer. Uh, yeah. Great, thanks. Um, and then another question, curious um, whether those rescued are required to pay any of the costs of the rescue. May have touched on this uh, briefly, but any additional comments there? 
Yeah, we don't. Uh, generally, the Mountain Rescue Association in the United States is is very against um, charging for rescue. There there are situations where it happens. It's very rare, uh, but we almost always get some sort of donation from the people who we rescue. You know, they're very thankful, and it ranges from a hundred dollars and a plate of cookies to uh, we got a donation for twenty five hundred dollars from somebody rescued. But we we don't charge. We don't ask we don't uh ask for donations uh they come in freely but um that's not our culture for mountain rescue in the united states we basically view it as public safety just like if you had to call 911 for the fire department call 911 for the police same sort of um philosophy great thanks so much and i know you were happy to be off the hook with regard to talking about covid today um <laughs> but you do have some leadership in that role too and, and an extensive leadership in general any brief comments on you know lessons lessons learned um or things that you would apply to um a covid response and maybe particularly as we're thinking about uh rolling out vaccines with greater intensity um thoughts on how to be most effective there or messaging to our patients and colleagues yeah it's a great that's a great uh, question i i think uh at least in hood river county what my what i'm really focusing on is public reassurance and you know there's a lot we've seen waves of anxiety in this pandemic um and you know with with testing and with schools and we have different waves of anxiety and we're in a very intense wave of anxiety because of vaccines and so part of i think leadership role is just reassurance just you know we're gonna get through this there's gonna be vaccine for everybody who wants it it takes time and so it's a lot of a lot of reassurance and a lot of um uh, a lot of delegating and then trusting the people that i delegate to um, and that's a big piece it's hard for us i think as as doctors and nurses and and uh, APCs, it's really hard for us sometimes to delegate and trust, but I think that's a big piece also. Well, thank you. And thank you, Dr. Van Tilburg, for a really fascinating talk, um, a slice of medicine that we often don't get exposed to um, and a nice change of topic these days. So we'll end there and leave people just a few moments gift of time and see you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me.